Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to Turnbuckle Training. Introducing first your longtime fan, short-time podcaster, and former fantasy wrestling hardcore champion, Peyton Despacito Green. And his tag team partner, making his debut in the wacky world of fighting fools, Zach the Man Barlow. Just the man? Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's the be- most apt descriptor of me, I think. He's just a, a dude. Just a guy. He's just some guy. I have a... It's, it honestly surprises me that no wrestler has just been called the man. Yeah, I mean, hey, we've got... Look, dude love, mankind, and those both belong to the same person. It's me, Austin! They spell disaster for you as sacrifice. Oh, son of a bitch. I did it for the love. Thanks again for, for joining us today. This is a show for longtime wrestling fans and rookies alike. We're going to take you through some of the biggest shows, matches, and rivalries in wrestling history here on Turnbuckle Training, or at least the ones I can talk about for an hour. And if you know nothing about wrestling, don't worry, because as you'll soon find out, I don't either. So, Peyton, what are we going to be talking about today? So, today we're kind of taking a shift uh, from what we did last week. Last week we did Bad Blood 1997, which, uh, as I mentioned, was kind of the one of the big beginning moments of the Attitude Era, which is pretty much the most famous eras in wrestling it's when you had trash tv but like these really crazy storylines people running in all the time lots of violence lots of sex lots of blood well that's sort of the the reason why that was so ramped up is because the wwf at the time was in so much competition you know they were airing raw on monday nights while WCW, their main competition, was also airing Nitro on Monday nights. So WCW actually is the one who starts with the whole trash TV kind of stuff to be competitive. So WWF has to be competitive. So they're in this ratings war for years, and WCW was actually in the lead for quite some time before their product starts to decline. You know, they they start making some poor booking decisions, and eventually... The WWF comes out on top, and Vince McMahon buys out World Championship Wrestling. Um, And that's, for a lot of people, that's what they say ends the Attitude Era, because the Attitude Era was so, was the way it was, because the WWF was trying to compete with WCW, and once they bought out the competition, well, there was really no reason to be the Attitude Era. So they start changing. That happens in 2001. Uh, Early 2001, or actually, it's, it's... the end of March of 2001 is when is when WWF buys out WCW. And it, it takes a little bit of, of a while. There's still some kind of Attitude Era-like influences uh, throughout, you know, the, the, the next year. But it's really 2002, which is the year we're in right now, where they, where they start to kind of change a little bit into what, People call the ruthless aggression era, which is the era we're talking about right now. And uh, for me, and for a lot of people, SummerSlam 2002 
is when we really see that because this event is kind of like a passing of the torch kind of thing. Um, and a lot of people would make the argument that the Ruthless Aggression era is even better than the Attitude Era because you still have some of the crazy storylines and the violence going on, but the wrestling is really, really good because they've, they've got so much talent. Uh, you'll even see it on this show. There's so much talent here. And 2002 is probably the best year for the WWF, eventually WWE, roster because you have – here's just a rundown of some of the people who were active wrestlers in the WWE during 2002. Now, not all these people are all at the same time. They kind of overlap. But in the year 2002, Stone Cold, The Rock, Hulk Hogan – Shawn Michaels, Triple H, Kurt Angle, Undertaker, John Cena, Brock Lesnar are all active competitors in the WWF slash WWE. All of those people were active wrestlers at some point in the year 2002. Uh, and that is just like, a, that's like basically most of the most famous wrestlers of all time wrestling all in one year. Yeah, I would say um, like 90% of people, if you went to them and said, hey, name a wrestler, then they would name one of those guys. Oh, for sure. And it, it's crazy to think that all those guys were wrestling at the same time. Uh, a lot of them don't even cross paths at all. Um, and part of that is because the roster is so big, and because the roster is so big, they eventually decide, okay, we got to do something about this because not everybody can get all their TV time because – Originally, even though they had Raw on Mondays and SmackDown, which was actually taped on Tuesdays but aired on Thursdays, even though they have two shows, they still are trying to keep up the same storylines on both shows. So basically, you had the same guys wrestling, but you have you know you have guys who really aren't your Rocks or Steve Austin's or Undertakers, but they're still really good athletes. So you want to feature them. So what they decide to do is they decide to split up the roster and have half the guys wrestle exclusively for Raw and half the guys wrestle exclusively for SmackDown. They call it the the brand split. It's really good for the company because you can feature, you know, everybody. And there's a lot of really talented people that wouldn't have gotten their spot otherwise. Um, there's a kind of a group of wrestlers they call the SmackDown Six. Uh, because SmackDown, while it wasn't the original show, it wasn't Raw, a lot of people look at it as the B-show, it probably had the better quality of wrestling on there. The The SmackDown 6 were just a group of younger guys who were really good wrestlers who were putting on great matches with each other, and those are Kurt Angle, Rey Mysterio, Eddie Guerrero, Chavo Guerrero, um, and Chris Benoit, and... Chavo doesn't wrestle on the show, but the other four do, uh, and they put on some incredible matches, and they would do that throughout this whole period. Uh, but I was going to say, yeah, what are some some of the traits, like some of the key features of the Ruthless Aggression era? Uh, well, it's it's the, the quality of the wrestling uh, really goes up. Uh, you You also have, you know, a lot of, it felt to me a little bit more like they had a little bit long, more long-term planning. You have rivalries that last for quite a while uh, that keep coming up throughout the era. Um, 
you have eventually so when they first started they what they did was they put um they kind of divvied up the titles uh some of the titles were on raw and some were on smackdown and eventually smackdown would create its own titles uh the only exception being the world title the wwe championship originally that was uh whoever was the champion would wrestle on both shows uh eventually in 2002 they get their own raw gets their own titles a lot of people did make a lot of complaints about that that there were too many titles yeah i see where that could get confusing a lot of time, but I will say, there were people who got the chance to be champion that probably would not have otherwise. So it's kind of like after the WWE knocked out its main competition, it became its own competition. Like it, because these wrestling shows, from what you're saying, they don't uh, they almost sound like they take place in the same like universe. Like they're two separate things with two separate groups of people and storylines going in each of them. So how much yeah, crossover it, is there? Well, and, and I will say it, everything's different. It's not just the wrestlers. Yeah, you know, they have different commentary teams. They have different ring announcers. Um, the crossover amount will will really kind of change throughout the years, uh, and that was one of the problems I think towards the end of the original brand split is that there got to a point where you couldn't tell who was on what show because they would jump over all the time, and uh, it would make when people jumped over it wouldn't make it as cool because originally there was very little crossover. They had their own pay-per-view. So they would have like one month Raw would have a pay-per-view. The next month SmackDown would have a pay-per-view. Um, and the only times that they would share a pay-per-view were the big four, which were SummerSlam, Survivor Series, Royal Rumble, and WrestleMania. And uh, and typically, even then, uh, WrestleMania was the only time that someone from Raw would wrestle someone from SmackDown. Uh, the... And then, of course, at the Royal Rumble, you'd have people from both uh, in in the match together. So, really, there were only two times a year where you'd ever see guys from Raw wrestle guys from SmackDown. Um, uh, you know, occasionally people might jump ship or something or get traded. And then, like, every year they would do a draft where uh, they would, they would, like, pick, you know, each general manager would, like, pick um, – draft selections they'd just like draw them out of a hat and they'd be like okay well now batista is moving over to smackdown now and it really made it really interesting to see you know who's going to end up on what show it also i will say it made a lot of matches more rare and so like whenever you'd get like a match like Shawn michaels versus kurt angle it's a match that had never happened before even though they had both been wrestling at the same time for a couple of years they were on different shows and so when we get to WrestleMania 21 and they wrestle, it's a dream match. And so it, it really boosted the interest of a lot of things, uh, in my opinion. Okay. So, yeah, that's, that's very cool. I didn't realize that going into this. So that, this is the start of that, 2002? Yeah, 2002 is the first time they have the brand split. It started a, a f- just a few months before this. April of that year was their first brand split pay-per-view uh and then this is in august so it's only been a few months uh where they're where they're having both shows and you can even see that there's actually one match where there is a there is a cross brand match here where they're fighting over the intercontinental championship 
Yeah, um, yeah, and we get some kind of weird uh, stuff going on there that we'll talk about later. Um, yeah. Also, another thing to point out is is that each show has a general manager where they're like in charge of. They're in charge of. They're the on screen authority figure. So Raw has Eric Bischoff is the general manager. He's the general manager of Raw for several years. Uh, Stephanie McMahon is the general manager of SmackDown. SmackDown goes through so many different GMs, it's ridiculous. But another important thing that's going on at this time is uh, the name change. So they were World Wrestling Federation for years, for decades. Um, And it's around, it was, I think, only two months before... um, so it was at, at uh, it was in May. It was in May where they changed from uh, World Wrestling Federation to World Wrestling Entertainment. Um, that was because of a of a legal dispute with the World Wildlife Fund, uh, who also has the initials WWF. Eventually, uh, the WWE has to change their name. Uh, they had a really interesting ad campaign called "Get the F Out." That is hilarious. It's really weird, though, if you're watching on the network and you have subtitles on, they subtitle the E to or the F to an E. Um, really? And Federation yeah. to Entertainment. Yeah, it's and weird. And that's because they aren't actually allowed. It's very weird. They're not allowed to say WWF now. Like, they can't say it any in, like, any new footage. Like, they have to, like, it, the only time you can hear the words WWF is, like, or World Wrestling Federation is from a past is is in like archive footage. And even here on this show, they're so it's they're so early into the name change that if you actually pay attention closely, there's one of the belts, the Intercontinental Championship belt has the logo blurred out because they hadn't changed the plate yet. Wow. The plate still said WWF, so they had to blur it live. I do have to say, I'm kind of glad that that happened because I like WWE much more than WWF. It, it, I don't know why. It's one letter difference. It just sounds better to me. Yeah, my only issue with it is that the old logo had the WW and then it had the F in the logo, and this one did not put an E in the logo, and that bothers me. That yeah, it's just that, is, that is, I agree, a problem. Yeah, well, uh, enough really on the backstory for right now. I think we've kind of covered all that we really can uh, on that. Maybe something will come back up. Let's let's go ahead and get into the into the show itself. SummerSlam 2002. Um, really, just first of all, just an excellent excellent show. This is one of those shows that's like. If you've never, if you're a wrestling fan and you've never seen it, or like you're a first time and you're like, "Hey, I want to watch a wrestling pay per view. What's the first thing I should watch?" I may very well say this one because it's just top to bottom a great show. Yeah, it's actually just straight up good. Like, and very few. There's like maybe one or two problematic moments, um, which sort of takes away from from the things that I like to talk about on this show. But um, is better for the world and for entertainment purposes. Yeah, it's also it's packed. There's really not like it's mostly wrestling matches too. There's not a lot of like backstage stuff, uh, which is kind of a mark of this era. A lot less promo stuff, especially in pay per views. Now on on you know Raw or SmackDown, there might be a little bit more of that. But 
Here in, in a wrestling pay-per-view, it's really all about the wrestling. Um, so SummerSlam 2002, uh, we're in, uh, I believe we're in Long Island, New York. Uh, we open to the crowd going nuts, and then we come to the announce table with Michael Cole and Taz welcoming us to the event. Michael Cole and Taz are the SmackDown announcers, uh, where Jim Ross and Jerry the King Lawler are announcing for Raw. Yeah, um, I thought the two-announcer system was kind of weird, and clearly I prefer JR and King to, to these guys. Yeah, well, they, they they have different announce teams for each show. Yeah, yeah. So so Michael Cole and Taz are calling the SmackDown matches, whereas JR and King are calling the Raw matches. And yeah, Taz and Michael Cole are no JR and King. Uh, and, and Michael Cole, he gets a lot of shit because... Some people are okay with him. A lot of people really hate him. Um, and then Taz is fine. Uh, former wrestler. They kind of ha- That's like kind of their their thing with announced teams. Is it's like one like the color commentator is used to be a wrestler, and the play by play is a non wrestling guy. Um, so anyway, we get right to it. Like they don't like honestly. I don't even think they go to the announce table right away. I think they just like start shooting off fireworks, and then Kurt Angle's music hits. Yeah, uh, so Kurt Angle, obviously very good technical wrestler. Um, I always thought he was pretty much permanently a face, but here the crowd does not seem to like him. Here's something you got to understand, Zach, is no one is permanently a face. And actually, I would argue that Kurt Angle is actually a heel for more of his career. Fair enough. He 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 spends more of his career as a heel because... um, even when he's a face, people still do the "you suck" chant. So they chant "you suck" in t- in tune to his music. Yeah, yeah. I'm not sure if they were doing it here. Oh, they were. They were. That's okay. what I, I noticed. That was like one of those things that started as a one off joke and is still going to today. Even when he's a face, they still chant "you suck." So it's less of the uh, they don't like him and more of it's a fun goof to do with his music. Well, a lot of times here, I'm pretty sure he's he's a heel. Um. And and Kurt Angle is Kurt Angle's you know coming off the the pay per view before this he was actually in the main event so now he's opening the show uh, Kurt Angle for let's talk a little bit about him uh, he is a Olympic gold medalist in wrestling uh, won the ninety six Olympics in wrestling uh, with a broken neck which is like part of his thing he's like I won a gold medal with a broken freaking neck. Um, so, I mean, he's arguably the best wrestler the WWE has ever had. Yeah, and when you get a gold medal in Olympic wrestling, it is, um, it's much different than, than the entertainment wrestling. Yeah, and you I mean... You actually have, I, to, have to win that one. Kurt Angle's in the ring, and Rey Mysterio's music hits. We're waiting on him to come down the aisle, but instead he shows up behind Kurt Angle springboards off the ropes and hits a head scissors. What an awesome way to start the show and start the opening match. Yeah, that was a dope way to start. Uh, a little bit about Rey Mysterio. He's a masked luchador. He um, So after WCW folded, uh, a lot of their talent came over to the WWE. Not right away, though, because a lot of them had these contracts that they opted to just sit out and get paid out for the rest of their contract, which makes sense. If I was going to get paid out till the for six months 
without working, I probably would do it too. Um, So it takes a while before a lot of these WCW wrestlers to come over. Rey Mysterio being one of those. um, He wrestled in WCW and in ECW for a little bit where he really made a name for himself in their cruiserweight division. So Rey Mysterio comes on the scene. We've got two of, as I was talking about before, our SmackDown 6 who wrestle each other a lot throughout this show. Uh, Kurt Angle and Rey Mysterio. These guys have two completely different styles. You know, Kurt Angle is your technical, you know, map-based wrestler, whereas Rey Mysterio is high-flying. But their styles work really well together. Yeah, no, this match is a lot of fun to watch. Especially, I don't know what the name of this move is, but when Rey Mysterio, like, swings through the ropes with a kick, what is that called? Because I love it. So that's his, his finish here. He calls it the 619 uh, because... 619 is his area code in San Diego. So, yeah, the 619, he puts the guy on the ropes, on the middle rope, and, and swings around the ropes and kicks him in the face and follows it up with, a like, a springboard plancha or hurricane rana. Uh, yeah, it's a, it's, a fun, it's a fun move. It's part of the reason why he's so loved because he's, he, he's got those fun moves. He's fun to watch. And then Kurt Angle, on the other hand, is, like, rolling and stuff. And, like, like at one point he, like, rolls... Rey Mysterio into an ankle lock, and I just thought that was super cool. Yeah, the, basically the through line, the story uh, here is that Angle wants to make Mysterio tap out. He wants to break his ankle. Um, and they also talk about how, you know, Ray has a, a pinfall victory over Angle in a tag team match. So basically here is is the whole story is like Angle's like, you know, I don't want to get embarrassed by this little guy. Um, but Rey Mysterio holds his own. This isn't a very long match, but it's, golly, it's good, you know, from beginning to end. Very fast-paced. Uh, Angle tries to slow it down, but even then, it's it's still really good. Because Kurt Angle can go, can go fast-paced. Uh, you know, we've watched some Kurt Angle matches. He can do just about everything, every style of wrestling. So eventually here, uh, Angle tries for his other finisher, the Angle Slam. But Mysterio reverses it into an arm drag, throws him out of the ring, and he tries to do some sort of diving move, but the referee stops him, which is like, what are you doing, ref? So the, the crowd hates that. Uh, and then, so Ray just decides to to jump over him and jump over the top rope, which is rolling so, Senton onto Angle so on cool. the outside. One thing the I love about the ref in this is that, and the ref in every wrestling match where the ref plays a role, is that he's doing like these hand gestures um, that, like, clearly mean nothing, but it's fun because he's, like, it, he's trying to make it look like he's telling the wrestler something with his hands when really he's just making shit up. Yeah, the referee plays an interesting role in wrestling, you know. They're, they're kind of the communication between the backstage area and the wrestlers, so, uh, you may not know this, but the, the ref is, like, kind of the one who's in charge of, like, making sure they stay on time. So he'll, you know, you know, if they're telling him in his ear, like, oh, hey, we need to wrap this up, you know, he'll communicate that with the wrestlers. Or if somebody gets hurt, he can communicate that to the back. Uh, so the ref does play an interesting role. Um, so the crowd's chanting, holy shit, as, uh, as Mysterio throws Angle back in the ring, hits a springboard leg drop to the back of his head, but he only gets a two count. Uh, Ray... Uh, uh, eventually, he he reverses Angle's Irish whip, jumps to the top rope, and he he 
jumps back down on a Kurt Angle, but Kurt catches him, puts him in an ankle lock. Ray kicks out of it, sends him into the ropes, tries for the six one or hits the six one nine, comes off the top rope with a West Coast pop, but Angle kicks out at two and a half. And then Ray goes to the top rope, jumps over Kurt Angle, then Kurt Angle jumps onto the second rope. Ray springboards off the ropes with a drop kick. And then once Ray's on the top rope, he tries to do a Hurricane Rana. But Kurt Angle reverses it, kind of. It looks a little weak, but he, he reverses it into an ankle lock, and Ray taps out to the ankle lock. Angle gets the submission move. This was, you know, I think there's something to be said for having a really strong match to open your show. And this may very well be the best show opener I've seen. Yeah, so I've seen very few show openers, but from what you've shown me, from what I've watched in the course of this and before, your show opener is typically, like, some dudes who are relatively unknown, they wrestle for a little bit while the commentary team really talks about what's going to happen later, and it's kind of, I mean, it's it's dipping your toes in, it's a little bit weak. But this was really, really strong, and, like, two extremely well-known wrestlers, but I guess maybe not at the time, but uh, Ang- Angle's pretty well. Known. I mean, Angle's already a multiple-time world champion at this point. And, and it, like I said, he was in the main event at the last pay-per-view. And what? Uh, yeah, like I, I just think that it sets a nice tone for the rest of the show. Yeah, I mean, and that's the thing. I mean, Kurt Angle really could. Like, I mean, Kurt Angle could like wrestle like a a paper bag and have a fantastic match. <laughs> uh, same goes for Ray too. I mean, the, uh, these two guys work incredibly well together. Uh, I don't know. I mean, they they do end up wrestling a few times, a lot of times in tag team matches, but I don't know how often we really get one on ones with them. Uh, but man, I gave it a four point five out of five stars because that. I mean, this is really an. I mean, people talk about it every now and then, but you know, people aren't ranking this with like the greatest matches of all time. But I mean, jeez, I mean, it's. It's good. I mean, it's it's good. That's all I can really. Say. I I really enjoyed it. I really had a lot of fun with this match. Yeah. Uh, so we go backstage to Stephanie McMahon, who is our SmackDown general manager, uh, and and she she is talking about how her brand is better. Yeah, we're, it, you know, this is the beginning. So we're getting a lot of that early like fighting between the two brands, but they do a really good job of not letting it cross over. You know, it's. It's one of those things, it's like, oh gosh, you know you want to do it, but you can't overdo it, because when you overdo it, you you make it less special. So, I I do give the WWE a lot of credit for the, you know, first few years of the brand split, they do a pretty good job of that. Um, she goes into the GM's office, but finds Eric Bischoff, the Raw general manager, in there. And he's like, well, there's only one general manager's office, and since both brands are here, we can just share an office. So they sit down in front of a very old TV, and uh, Bischoff tells her to take some notes. And and she manages to—they both really manage to be very bad actors. Um, and yeah, I, with very few lines. So we go back to the announce table with Jim Ross and Jerry Lawler. Your favorites. Yes, my absolute favorites. And so I feel like this show, I, uh, I'm i going to go ahead and spoil a little something. I think all the matches are good. Um, but I think that we actually get better matches 
from the other announced team, and then Jim and King are left with still good matches, but not the ones that I think are the standouts in the show. That uh, That is a good point, and, and that's what I was mentioning earlier. Raw kind of is the more storyline-driven show, where SmackDown really focuses on the wrestling. Part of it is because Paul Heyman was behind the scenes. Part of it is because I think the talent was a little bit better on SmackDown, because you got Kurt Angle, Rey Mysterio, Eddie Guerrero, Chris Benoit. Raw has a lot of the older guys, but a lot of the young talent on um, on SmackDown is really showing out. And I, I think part of that is because Raw's the older, more legacy show, so a lot of the older guys want to be featured on there. You want to kind of keep the same audience, whereas SmackDown is, is the growing one. Which I will say this, WWE, from what I've heard, even though SmackDown did kind of turn into the B show, WWE cared a lot about SmackDown. Probably the biggest reason was because Raw was on cable, SmackDown was broadcast. So oh, theoretically more people were watching SmackDown. Because it, I mean, to be fair, it was on like the last place broadcast network, UPN, but it was still, you didn't have to have cable to watch it, which I mean, now doesn't really mean anything. But back then, you know, a lot of people were still watching TV on their antennas. So uh, they put a lot of work into SmackDown for that reason. So we're at, at JR and, and Jerry Lawler. They're, they're saying it's going to be an interesting night with both GMs here. And King says he wants to welcome everyone to the Raw portion of SmackDown, uh, SummerSlam. <laughs> that, wasn't, that wasn't me. That was King, that was King messed that up. Uh, yeah, yeah. Was, uh, that's that's very good. So we go to our first match from Raw, which is Chris Jericho versus Ric Flair. I want to talk about Ric Flair for a minute because— Let's do that because, man, is he old. Yeah, and you think he's old here. He doesn't retire until 2008. Because when I first saw that this match was coming up, I was like, oh, this is going to be one of those matches. You know, sometimes in the WWE, like an older wrestler will come back and face a younger wrestler. Um, Yeah. I thought that's what this was, but I guess not. I guess Ric Flair was just with the company still. Yeah, no, Rick. Oh, well, okay. So Rick Flair was with the WWF for a long time. He eventually left in the '90s and started wrestling for WCW. He was there for a long. T- he was actually Rick Flair wrestled the last match of WCW Monday Nitro, the very last match that ever aired. He was in the main event. Oh wow! Um, and he would come back to the WWE a little while later originally started as the owner of Raw and had this rivalry with Vince, uh, and he was kind of, didn't wrestle too much and slowly started to to make kind of a wrestling comeback. And then he became a full-time guy, uh, and he, he, would, he was a full-time wrestler until 2008. And, you know, he wasn't putting on barn burners, but, you know, and the crowd is, like, eating it up. They are loving Ric Flair. Yeah, like, no, I the love Wu the way chance. that Ric Flair fucking, like, <laughs> throughout this match, I think this is the fucking funniest shit. He just, like, when he's facing down the other guy, he'll just go, woo! Like, he's like, like I mean, I know that's his thing, but he's like a fucking owl, just, like, wooing at them. <laughs> it, uh, we also, it's a, Ric Flair's facing off against Chris Jericho, and Chris Jericho is another guy who came over from... WCW, not after they they went out of business, mind you. He he came before, so he left WCW because he wasn't really getting used right there. So he come to WWF. Chris Jericho has a really good run early in his WWE career. Um, with by 2002, uh, so earlier this year, he ends up 
So after WCW closed, they brought the WCW World title over and used it as another championship. Eventually they decide, okay, well, we don't need two world titles, so we're going to unify them. They have like this mini tournament, and Chris Jericho ends up beating The Rock and Stone Cold in the same night to win both the WWF championship and the WCW championship, becoming the undisputed WWE champion. Um and it, he really touts that. He's like, oh, I'm the first ever undisputed champion. I'm the only person to beat The Rock and Stone Cold on the same night. Unfortunately, he doesn't get used right when he's the champion and ends up getting buried to Triple H. And Jericho, golly, he doesn't win a world title again for ever. It, um, I think it's not until like 2007 or eight before he wins another world championship. Oh, wow. Um but Jericho's another one of those like mainstays of the company who's like I mean he's he's really talented. He's really charismatic. His his character work is great. He's really good as a heel particularly. Um he uh they they kind of give us a little bit of a backstory. So Chris Jericho Chris Jericho also has a rock band named Fozzy and they show Ric Flair interrupting Jericho's rock concert all beaten up and bloody. So we start with the match, and uh, they uh, they go for a tie-up, and, and and Jericho pushes Flair into the corner. Flair slaps him right in the face. Uh, I like when the announcers talk about Jericho's music, and uh, King asks JR if he likes Fozzie, which is Jericho's band, and JR's like, oh, that's not really my type of, type of music. Oh. Yeah. And then, oh, you don't and like rock and roll? And JR says, was, was that what that was? <laughs> I think it was really funny. Um, Jericho, uh, or Flair tosses Jericho over the top rope, but he, he he flips back in the ring. Flair is nailing some hard chops on Jericho. That's that's Flair's thing. He likes to chop people, and, man, he is really laying into him. Chopping uh, and wooing. Chopping and wooing. Just a chopping and wooing son of a gun. Uh Outside, Jericho rips off part of the barricade and slams Ric Flair on top of like the exposed steel there. Um, he he gets on the top rope and comes down on him against the barricade with like a double axe handle. Uh, they get back in the ring eventually, and Jericho tries to remove the turnbuckle pad, and the ref stops him. But he manages to grab like a piece of rope and start choking Flair while the yeah, he's gonna go fucking like Hitman Ric Flair, which is wild. Yeah, Flair. I mean, Jericho attempts murder in this match. It's kind of like if you're watching a wrestling match and one of the wrestlers just pulled out a fucking revolver. You know, <laughs> like there are weapons you know, that I we use in wrestling, and then there that's are never weapons. Happened. And uh, I feel like trying to strangle someone kind of falls into the latter category. Jericho in the ring with the rope. <laughs> um, Flair eventually gets uh, gets the advantage, and uh, and hits a suplex for a two count. He tries for another suplex, but Jericho escapes and tries to put Ric Flair in the walls of Jericho. So both of these guys are... We actually have a lot of submission guys, which kind of happens during this era. Because, uh, you know, Kurt Angle's got the ankle lock. Jericho has the walls of Jericho, which is where he just stands on the guy's back while he's lying down and, and wrenches both legs. Flair, meanwhile, has the figure four leg lock. I won't try to explain how that move works, but... 
Uh, uh, can we actually, now, what are your feelings about submissions? Because I, I have some that I want to talk about later because this is a sort of submission-heavy heavy pay-per-view, as you mentioned. Um, but what, what do you uh, think about them? I'm I'm okay with it. I think it's a good storytelling technique, especially you know when someone can you know focus on a body part and work it over. You know they can spin the whole match. You know attacking you know the leg to, and you know it's like okay, well he's he's obviously doing that so he can he can you know put in an ankle lock or something. Um, they can slow down a match, but if you do it right, it's it's really good. Okay. Okay. And sense. it also is a good storytelling technique where you can have like someone, f- you know, fighting with everything they have not to tap out, or you can also use it as a storytelling technique to be like, you know, you know, like when uh, when Brock Lesnar eventually taps out to Benoit, he get they start chanting at him, you know, you tapped out, you tapped out. Yeah, it kind of makes uh, you look like a coward a little bit. Yeah, and there are actually, I think it's interesting. There are a lot of wrestlers who have like never tapped out. Um, very well. Actually, I'll say a lot. Very few, and there are a lot of guys who've only tapped out to just Kurt Angle. I've noticed. Oh wow! So, and here's here's uh, my last question before we can move on here, and that is when it comes to so obviously like wrestling is is equal parts sort of physical ability and theatrics, and so like not all of the hits that you're seeing are hitting as hard as they appear to hit, but they are still. At the bare minimum, uncomfortable, if not extremely painful. Submissions. Are those actually hurting the person, or is that all acting? I'd, I'd say it's it's a lot acting. Um, you know, like, I, 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 they're by no means comfortable, but a, a very few of them are going to be terribly painful. A lot of them they can, they can put on safely without actually applying a lot of torque. So it just looks bad, uh, from what I understand. Um, well, at one point, listener James Kuhn put me into what he called a crab lobster, and I have to say that uh, that actually really hurt. Well, that's because he was trying to hurt you. Fair enough. <laughs> Flair is able to reverse out of that out of that walls of Jericho, rolls him up. Uh, eventually, Jericho tries for a lion salt, which is a springboard, you know, backflip. But uh, but Flair rolls out of the way, and then Flair puts Jericho in the walls of Jericho, or tries to, and Jericho gets out of it, and he st- and puts Ric Flair in the figure four leg lock. Uh, Ric Flair manages to get to the ropes. That is something important to know. Uh, a rule in wrestling is that if you can manage to get to the to the rope and grab a hold of the rope, then the then you have to break either the pin or you have to break the submission, uh, or the referee will start counting you down, and if he counts you to five, you get disqualified. Um, so that's just kind of an important thing to know with the, the inner workings of, of wrestling. Uh, even though Flair gets to the ropes, he taps out at the same time he, he grabs the ropes, which is something I don't, I've really is like, I've never really seen that as a, as a storytelling device. I thought it was kind of cool and unique. Uh, Jericho acts like he won, but the ref is like, hey, Flair got to the ropes first. So Ric Flair comes from behind and attacks Jericho. He knocks down the ref. So while the ref is down, Ric Flair low blows him and puts him in the figure four, and Jericho taps out. And then there's a great line from, I believe, King, where he says, uh, <laughs> he just broke the king's jewels, because Jericho apparently also calls himself the king. Yeah, I think he, well, he, I think like the king of rock and roll or, or something like that. Um, 
I, I thought this was a really good match with good st- storytelling between the two. The only problem I really had here was I really feel like Jericho should have won this match. That's what I was thinking, too. And that's part of it was because I was thinking that they were going to— uh, I thought they were trying to put over Jericho, but I didn't realize that Ric Flair was still like actively wrestling. I'm glad you mentioned that, so that's a good time to, to talk about our word of the day, putting over. Uh, putting over is a wrestling term that refers to, you know, giving someone the win for a purpose. You know, obviously wrestling is all scripted, but there are reasons why certain people win and certain people lose. Uh, you want to make, you know, if you're trying to build someone up as a main event or top talent, you want them to look good when they win and even look good when they lose. Um and you typically go for your younger guys, uh, and you go for who's going to benefit the most from this win. To me, this makes Jericho look bad and Flair look good, where Flair doesn't need to look good. You right, know, because Rick he's Flair, already a wrestling legend. Yeah, Ric Flair can lose this match, and people aren't going to be like, oh, man, Ric Flair sucks. Like, <laughs> But if Jericho loses to Ric Flair, if Jericho, who's a younger guy who is pretty new in his career and you want to build up as a top talent or a main event talent, loses to someone like Ric Flair, it makes him look weak. And that's not really the look you want to go for. So I, I'm kind of question what they were going for here, uh, unless they were just kind of capitalizing on some of Ric Flair's popularity. I think he's pretty new back into becoming a full-time wrestler, so maybe they were trying to push him that way. But, I mean, Ric Flair is not going to, you know, for the rest of his career, he's never going to be, you know, a main event or, or a world champion again. Whereas Jericho, you know, is still pretty fresh. So I I thought it was weird that, that Flair beat Jericho. So there I, are, even though it is scripted, and even though it, it is telling a story, there are some wrestlers that I understand do not like putting other people over um, and will will fight back against that pretty heavily. That's true. Um, um, and one of those being Mr. Uh, Mr. Hogan. Yeah. And we, and in fact, they start talking about him, which I'm assuming they edited this out of the network. They edited out some sort of commercial for Hulk Hogan's DVD because oh. they are referencing it when we go backstage to Brock Lesnar and Paul Heyman. They're talking about this Hulk Hogan DVD that they were like, where'd that come from? It came out of nowhere. Oh, so I think man. they edited it out. Uh, and I, I think what you're thinking of is that they edited it out for um, uh, for some sort of, like, because of the controversy with him. I actually don't think that's it. Oh, okay. Because uh, WWE does very little of that kind of editing into their shows. I mean, you know, Chris Benoit Okay, is yeah, that's fair. Benoit in is in this show. show. So I, I, think, I think they just edited it out because they uh, they usually don't keep the products in the shows they edit out the selling of products which i think is kind of a shame because i think that those are a lot of fun to look back on yeah they are but i think it's because it's like well you can't like you know just go out and buy like it because i guess i don't want to give the impression it's like available now on yeah i can't call that number and get the austin 316 shirt anymore yeah exactly but yeah i I, they, they aren't very um, 
consistent with that. It, it might have something to do with copyright. I'm not sure. I'm just I'm just riffing about it. Um, I assume that that is what happened though, because uh, we go backstage to Brock Lesnar and his uh, his manager Paul Heyman. They're talking about the Hulk Hogan DVD. Uh, and Heyman is say is saying that Hulk Hogan's career is dead because of Brock Lesnar beat him. So Brock Lesnar, uh, we'll talk about him a little bit here. He's pretty, he's very new into his career. He only started wrestling earlier this year, um, and so he's already going up against The Rock for the world title at this show, and he's also already wrestled Hulk Hogan. And beat him, and beat him, and and beat him by submission. Beat Something. him with a, he, he, and not even by submission. He made him pass out to a bear hug. Oh so, my god! And, I mean, Brock <laughs> is getting put over for sure. He and that's the thing you're talking about Hulk Hogan not putting people over. Here he does it. He, I mean, he put Brock Lesnar over in a in a big way. I guess maybe he's just selective and really doesn't like Shawn Michaels. Brock beat Brock is getting pushed to the moon, especially with beating Hulk Hogan in especially clean, and by submission. Which I, I believe Hogan has like two submission losses in his whole career. Wow! So that's uh that's impressive. Anyway, we we go next to our next match to another SmackDown match, another match with two members of the SmackDown Six. We get Eddie Guerrero. Versus Edge, um, the first thing I notice is somebody holding up a goddamn "Deport Eddie" sign. Which oh my god, uh, Eddie's Eddie's another guy who wrestled in WCW for a while, and he wrestled in ECW. He eventually jumped ship, and it, his jumping ship along with because he he came over with a few other guys, Chris Benoit, Dean Malenko, and Perry Saturn. They all jumped ship at the height of the Attitude Era. Chris Benoit was actually the WCW champion when they jumped ship. Um, now, you know, that had to hurt a little bit. Yeah, it did. And, and it's, it's considered a big moment. Um, Eddie's one of those small guys who never really got his due in WCW, and it takes a while before he really gets his due in WWE, but he's considered one of the best wrestlers of all time. And... One of the greatest people of all time. Like, everyone always talks about how great of a guy he was. Um, and, it, you know, unfortunately, he passes away. It's one of the most tragic, you know, wrestler deaths in history because he was so beloved. Um, but it's it's funny to me. Edge comes out next, and the crowd just explodes for him. Because, and it's funny because I always – Edge is always, t- in my mind, you know, you have your kind of – people who you always associate with as either a face or a heel. I always yeah. associate Edge as a heel. So to see the crowd going nuts for Edge, I think is kind of funny. But um, um, the Go ahead. Uh, I was just going to say, you know, Edge to me, uh, both he and Christian do make an appearance here in this show. Uh, and when I think of Edge, I think of him like in relation to Christian as their tag team is uh, one of my favorites. Do you like well, they had act- more solo or tag team? Uh, solo. Um, they bo- they broke up a little bit before this the, in the previous year. Um, it's, and they both go on to have really good careers, Edge especially. Uh, you know, there's always one guy who succeeds more than the other. 
Uh, Edge goes on to be a multi-time champion. They they break up and they don't actually even wrestle. They never wrestle as a tag team full time ever again. Uh, just here and there. But uh, now I, I would say th- I mean they're a great tag team. But I say they go on to have really good success as single stars. I would almost say it like this. I prefer Edge as a singles, but I prefer Christian as a tag team because Christian just doesn't achieve the same success that Edge does. Okay. Unfortunately, because I, I think undeservedly so. I I just think the WWE didn't really use Christian right. Uh, Christian, act, Christian actually become probably gets more successful in TNA because Christian leaves and goes to TNA for a while and kind of runs the show over there for a while. I just have one question, and that is, do you think that in the WWE, uh, you as the wrestler have more influence over your future and your popularity than the company, or that the company really and how they use you is what is determinative of your success? I feel like you could write an essay on that, because uh, it depends. It's a little bit of both. Um, I think there are some guys who just have it, some guys who don't. But then again, I think probably at the end of the day, it's more the company. Because there are a lot of guys who I think were great wrestlers who were just not used right by the company and never were. Where on the other hand, I think there are guys who are who are pushed by the company that don't deserve it on the other hand. So, uh, yeah, yeah, sort I think of the, the pit has bulls of wrestling. The pit bulls? Yeah, uh, the uh, rapper pit bull. Sort of pushed okay. all the time, but not very good. See, I'm so in wrestling mode, I was like, how do you even know about the tag team, the Pitbulls? So the announcers mentioned that Edge likes to call himself the future of SmackDown. Apparently this feud is all over Eddie being jealous of Edge because he's popular and a sex symbol. Which, I mean, aren't they all? Yeah, sort sort of a weird feud. I think, especially from a dude that calls himself Latino Heat, like, like his whole thing is that he's a sex symbol, and so, like, how's he going to be mad at Edge for, like, the same shit? This match is too sexy. It is. It's a very sexy match. However, no, it's not too sexy. If Shawn Michaels were in this match, that would push it over the edge. Yeah, and we would just, we would just, like, all just come so hard. And this is completely irrelevant to this match, but do Mr. Ass and Shawn Michaels ever wrestle each other? You know what? I probably not because No. Because well, uh, he may have wrestled Billy Gunn, but he Billy Gunn didn't become Mr. Ass until Shawn Michaels was already injured and I think by the time Shawn Michaels came back, they were on different brands and so I don't think they ever wrestled when he was Mr. Ass. This is the greatest tragedy of all time, but continue. We get lots of good back and forth action uh in this one. Uh it, it's kind of another one it, it, there's some good storytelling here uh, because Cole, Michael Cole mentions that Edge had previously injured his shoulder in a steel cage match with Kurt Angle that put him out of action for a month. So Eddie is really focusing on his shoulder. He sends him into the steel step shoulder first. Uh, he, uh, he Edge tries for a spear, but but Eddie gets out of the way, and then Edge goes like through the ropes and lands like on his arm on the outside. So they're really pushing that. And that's what I was talking about earlier is what makes can make a submission 
really good is you can have them focus on one body part, which that's what's it, what Eddie is doing. He's really working over that shoulder. Yeah, and if you um, ever get a real-life injury and you work for the WWE, you're just fucked because they are going to play that forever. Like, you're forever not going to be able to, one, forget that you got this injury, or two, ever live without pain in that region of your body. Yeah, I mean, anytime like like Shawn Michaels has a match, they're like always like, oh, he broke his back a million years ago. Yeah, exactly. Uh, I which think we even, actually get some they, of that in this as well. They even bring up Ric Flair hurting his back in a goddamn plane crash. <laughs> oh my or, god! In the last match, Edge eventually fights back against Eddie. Hits a top rope face buster, but only gets two and a half. Edge goes to the corner, signaling for the spear. He charges at him, but Eddie drop kicks him. Then Eddie goes to the top rope, tries for his signature, a frog splash. But Edge gets his knees up, and then he hits the execution. But Eddie kicks out. Cole says the, it's the first time anyone has kicked out of the execution. The execution is the dumbest fucking name for a move that I have honestly, ever heard. He, he quits using it after a while. I honestly forgot he ever did it as like kind of a like a secondary finisher. But yeah, it is really dumb. Uh, there, they. I think he has like a bunch of like Edge theme names, like the execution, the Edge, edgematic, which I don't even know. That what doesn't that's even make sense. Uh, Eddie gets a Northern Light suplex and a neck breaker. Eddie goes to the top rope, but Edge meets him up there, and Eddie starts headbutting him in the shoulder till he falls off the mat. Eddie then hits a frog splash right on Edge's shoulder. And Edge kicks out. I honestly was surprised that wasn't the finish. I was like, oh, okay, here's the finish. That's what a great finish. He eventually can't overcome the injuries to the arm, but he kicked out. I was like, what? Um, Eddie grabs Edge by the wrists and goes to the top rope but gets knocked down. And, and Cole says something really great. He says, he doesn't want to hurt the shoulder. He wants to amputate it. Yeah. <laughs> Edge then gets a huge spear on Eddie for the win. I thought it was yet another great match with great storytelling. I don't have too much to say about it. I gave it a 3.75 out of 5 stars. Yeah, I thought it was fun. I thought it was good. So, yeah, another great... I'd say it's probably the second best match on the card. I gave the... I didn't mention earlier. I gave the Flair and, and Jericho match a 3.5. So we go backstage, and Jonathan Coachman is interviewing the Un-Americans... And oh Christian, my God, Lance is this just a fucking constant running thing in wrestling, Peyton, that there's always this one group of Canadians that hates America? Is this just something that's going to happen forever? Because this was in the last episode we did. Yeah, and that was five years earlier. Right. Um, yeah, kind of, because then later you get La Resistance, which is Canadians, but they're French Canadians that also hate America. Yeah, it's kind <laughs> of just a theme um, and, and especially because it's 2002, we're right after 9-11, so you don't dare say anything about America. Oh, yeah, because that's, I noticed it's like a very easy way to get the crowd riled up. Oh, yeah. Yeah, so Christian and Lance Storm are insulting uh, America, and in particular the fans of Long Island. It's always a really easy way to get, like, cheap heat is just to be like, we hate you here in X City. Yeah, like, I I want them to go to somewhere, I mean, like, Long Island, that's pretty, pretty big, but I want them to go to, like, I don't know, Boulder, Colorado, and be like, Boulder, Colorado has the worst people in the world. 
Well, I, I went, when I was a kid, I, I went to see wrestling shows a lot. I remember I went to one uh, in Biloxi, Mississippi, and they were like, uh, they're, they're like, someone was given a promo. He was like, oh, you rednecks here in Mississippi. And then they like cut to a guy in the crowd wearing all camo. Oh, you know what? That was a fair shot. <laughs> yeah, that's true. And I'm, they found that guy who I was probably not a plant. I'm sure that was a real guy. Yeah, I mean, you're you're going to get someone in all camo. I, I, any when I say plant, I didn't mean that, like, because he was wearing camo, I thought that he was <laughs> a, a piece of flora or fauna. I meant, like, crowd. he was planted there. Yeah, Not that he was planted there because he's <laughs> a tree. Planted there, like, as in, you know what I mean. So we, our next match is for the World Tag Team Championship. We've got Booker T and Goldust. What a team against the Un-Americans and Christian and Lance Storm. Booker T and Goldust really were a good team. Yeah. They were an odd couple, and they were funny. That's what I was – it's like this is um sort of – you took a couple of the oddballs and then put them together, and it works. Yeah. I, I, I They did lots of funny behind-the-scenes stuff. Uh, that y- you guys should look up on, on YouTube or something. I do think it's funny is that, like, as soon as you get, like, an un-American person, ev- like, uh, everyone's everyone hates them. Oh, yeah. Like, King is a face here. King is, is, like, is putting over Booker and Gold Dust because, you know, America. And has a great line where he says, and they're from Canada, where the start of moose season is a national holiday. <laughs> oh, my God. Um, they, they're waving an upside-down flag. They're getting huge boos and USA chants. The crowd starts can- chanting, Canada sucks. Uh, the WWE really made me think Canadians were horrible. Yeah, I can see why. Like, Canadians really in media do not get that much mention, but in the WWE, they are a mainstay. Cr- Christian and Storm are actually really good wrestlers, just saddled with a pretty bad gimmick here. Um... Yeah, and so I like how it has gotten a little bit more intense. Like, last time we had the Canadian match in in the previous episode, they were just, like, draping Canadian flags over people. But this time we've got the upside-down American flags. They're edgy Canadians this time. Last time they were proud Canadians. This time they're edgy Canadians. Yeah, this time it's not like they, like, love Canada a bunch. They just hate the U.S. Which they, like, show some replays about how they're talking about how America is, like, a bunch of stupid people. And it's like, eh. Yeah, and how kids today can name every Britney Spears song, but they can't name all the things in the Bill of Rights. Just fucking stupid insults. The millennials. Oh, my God. Wow, Um, it really is that, though. So uh, we we get uh, gold dust starting out, um, and they really... they start working over Gold Dust a bunch. Uh, he eventually is a- able to to tag in Booker, but the ref doesn't see it. So the- while the ref's kicking Booker out, Storm and Christian double team Gold Dust, uh, which happens like twice in the match. Or eventually, Gold Dust starts crawling over to the corner to try to tag in Booker, but Storm comes in, knocks Booker off the apron. Uh, Booker chases Storm off, chases him around the ring, and tries to come back in the ring. The ref cuts him off. While the ref's distracted, Storm brings in two steel chairs. So Storm and Christian go for the concerto, which was Edge and Christian's, like, signature double-team move where they would each take a chair and sandwich the guy's head in between the two of them. 
But uh, Gold Dust ducks, and and he makes the hot tag to Booker. And uh, not only that, but I mean, he he lands a pretty sick hit here after he ducks the concerto, which I thought was pretty cool because I don't know. I, I typically I don't think that you get to see Gold Dust be cool a lot, but he was pretty cool in this. Gold Dust is great. Booker comes in, cleans house, and starts chopping the shit out of Christian. Uh, eventually, Booker tries to hit the scissors kick, but Booker or Christian Duck sets up Booker for his finisher, the unprettier. But Booker shoves him off, hits a flapjack. Storm just like flies across the ring with a heel kick, uh, but Booker ducks and he takes out the ref instead. But Booker gets a double scissors kick on both guys, and he does the spinner Rooney, which is literally just him like break dancing. Yeah, I think it's weird that that's called that they chose the Spinneroony as the name for that. But it, later, a, a few years later, they get Kane to do the Spinneroony, and they call it the Kaneroony. Now that's just absurd. Yeah, that is absurd because they don't call it the Bookerooney. Why would they just like put his name in it? But I digress. Um, Booker tries to cover, but there's no ref, so Storm comes in, hits Booker with the tag title belt, or he tries to, and Booker ducks, and Goldust and Booker clothesline him right out of the ring, and then Test, the other member of the Un-American, shows up and kicks Booker right in the face, Christian covers, and wow, what a coincidence, that's right when the referee woke up, (laughs) I gave it a three out of five. wasn't a bad re- a bad match. It had good pacing. It's just uh, a lot of repetitive storytelling. You know, you get the same thing in every tag match where they dominate one guy for the whole thing, and then the other guy comes in, and cleans house. So, you know, nothing special. Yeah, I agree. I mean, it was just very. Yeah, it was good. It was just be pretty average. So. Just to prove to you that they didn't, that the Attitude Era wasn't the only horny era, era, era of wrestling. Oh, we get some yeah. horniness here and in a very weird way. So first of all, I want to talk about, this is all happening at the WWE's The World Restaurant, which was a restaurant they had in Times Square. A wrestling-themed restaurant. And there, Nidia and Cruiserweight Champion Jamie Noble are hosting a makeout competition, which keep in mind, in storyline, Nidia is Jamie Noble's girlfriend. So they're having a makeout com- competition, and Jamie Noble's like cheering on these guys who are making out with his with his girlfriend. He's go he's like, like get it, get it. Yeah, um Do that tongue thing you do. <laughs> I, I, Stick your tongue down his throat like, like he's it's a real. Um, it's he really shows him off as being a sort of um, a cuck in the in the way that he's enjoying it. Um, I don't like this at all. Okay, one, it's a makeout contest. No, it's not. It's some other kind of contest. The prize of which is making out. It's not a contest to see who can make out the best. That is true. Uh, although we did the the loser is everyone who had to watch this. <laughs> oh uh, but it is, if that wasn't enough, we go backstage to Stephanie and Eric Bischoff, and Bischoff says uh, talks about Nidia and says, "Well, she's a woman who really knows her place in this business." Oh, but then Stephanie says something arguably worse and says that just like her, the real place for women in this business is on top. Get it? Like sex. Oh, she was talking about sex. I thought she meant like, you know, like being successful at your job. No, she wasn't talking about shattering the glass ceiling. Uh, 
Nope. So we go to the next match after this. This match has this show has very few like non wrestling segments, but when it does, they're horrible. <laughs> yes, <laughs> absolutely. So next we go into our Intercontinental Championship match. Uh, a little bit of backstory here is that the Intercontinental title was originally a Raw title, but Chris Benoit won the title, and then he took it back to SmackDown with him. So now they're they're fighting over the, over the championship and which brand is going to have the title. Now uh, we do need to kind of address something with this next uh, this next match. Kind of the elephant in the room, Chris Benoit. Uh, as many of you know, in 2007, Chris Benoit, on one of the most tragic days in, in pro wrestling history, Chris Benoit murdered his, his wife, Nancy, and their young son, Daniel. Um, it's been kind of the WWE's policy, not to mention Chris Benoit. Uh, his matches are on the network, uh, however. Um, for us, if we're going to give you a true wrestling experience it would be hard for us to you know not include Benoit matches and especially not to include shows that have Chris Benoit on them so uh, we felt it would be even a little more jarring if we just skipped over the match entirely so uh, we are going to talk about this next match uh, just from a wrestling standpoint not really going to talk about Chris Benoit the the man or the wrestler as as we might do for for another uh, for another entry, uh, so to speak. Um, so we're just gonna kind of leave that out. That if this you know makes you uncomfortable, you're like, I you know I don't want to hear about this. It brings up bad memories. It I, I just it makes me feel uncomfortable. Feel free, uh, skip over this match. Uh, go on to the next one. The next one will be um, will be Test and Undertaker. Um, so if you want to skip ahead a few minutes to go to that match, feel free. Uh, or continue to listen. Um, so Benoit is the Intercontinental Champion after taking it over to SmackDown, uh, whereas Rob Van Dam is on Raw trying to take the title back to Raw. Um, this was what I was talking about. This is They're still in the transitional period between the WWF and WWE, so if you look at the belt, it's the belt logo is blurred out because it still has the WWF plates. <laughs> um and then we get Rob Van Dam, who was uh, a mainstay of ECW, and Benoit, as I mentioned, was in ECW and WCW. Uh, we get a lot of that. Like basically every match, every match we've done so far has somebody who came from WCW or ECW um, or both. And um, RVD was probably the most popular wrestler in ECW history. Without ever winning the world title there, um, but he did have the television title for like almost two years. Um, so again, these are two guys who probably would not have been huge stars in the WWE if not for the brand split. Uh, so you know, I'm thankful for that uh, that they did this. You know, Rob Van Dam is, is a, his whole gimmick is that he's he's like a martial arts based guy, so he's hitting some some hard kicks and stuff. Uh, he He's kind of 
you know, rolling through moves to reverse him. He's uh, he it's an this is another match that's almost kind of mirrors the first match with uh, Kurt Angle and Rey Mysterio because you got a guy who's more of a high flyer and a, versus a submission guy. Um, at some point, Benoit's lip gets busted and he's bleeding from the mouth. Um, Benoit is trying to focus on submissions uh, to kind of keep RVD grounded. Uh, eventually, RVD goes for a split-legged moonsault, but Benoit gets his knees up, and then Benoit goes to the top rope, tries for a diving headbutt, but RVD goes out of the way. RVD goes to the top rope, tries for his five-star frog splash, but Benoit gets out of the way, and then he puts him in his his signature move, the crippler crossface, trying to make him tap out. Um, We go backstage to Steph and Bischoff watching the match for a second. Uh, and that's kind of the through line here is the Raw versus SmackDown. This is the only match of its of its kind on this show where we have the brands facing off. So that's pretty cool. I think it's one of the first times they really ever do something like that. Really? Yeah. Cause, I mean, again, this is pretty early in it. Eventually, SmackDown will kind of create its own secondary titles uh, and tag team titles. Um. You know, when I started watching this match, I was like, man, this is kind of almost copying the earlier matches uh, because it kind of copies the, the Kurt Angle Ray Mysterio thing where we got a high flyer and a submission guy. It kind of copies the Edge versus Eddie match where you have Benoit working one body part. But as it goes on, I really start getting more and more impressed with it. Yeah, it's a, it's a very good match. RVD tries for a monkey flip in the corner where he just kind of uses his knees to flip him over. But Benoit catches him, puts him on the top rope, goes for a back suplex, but RVD counters it in midair with a crossbody. Then goes back up to the top with the five-star frog splash for the win. Um, Another really incredible match. Like, I mean, we're we're really just nailing it on everything. I gave this one a 4.25 out of 5. Rob Van Dam brings the Intercontinental Championship back to Raw. Um, I think it's kind of interesting here is that is that Raw has all of the titles. <laughs> uh, the only one it, difference being the WWE Championship, which is defended on both. But Raw has all the championships. Uh, well, I think the Cruiserweight Championship is only on SmackDown, but everything else... Uh, so Bischoff brags about having the ti- the title back on Raw. Stephanie just laughs and walks off. I think that's foreshadowing. She later ends up bringing back the United States Championship uh, as SmackDown's secondary title. Okay, I yeah, I was wondering what her laugh and walk away was about. I think, but then again, I'm just guessing. I could be way wrong. We get a little promo package for the Un-Americans, even though we've just seen them, so we kind of know what their de- deal is. Yeah, uh, big spoiler, they're not fans. Yeah, they're very un as it, as it pertains to America. <laughs> so our next match is uh, Test representing the Un-Americans versus the Undertaker. So, you know, it's interesting to watch us go from our last show to this show. From the Undertaker being cool to the Undertaker being this. Yeah. Now, what what are your thoughts on Biker Taker? I hate Biker Taker. I hate him. I hate him so Uh, much. I I should explain. The Undertaker uh, went through this midlife crisis, I guess, um, where he stopped death crisis. Oh, good. He stopped being this mysterious, you know, dead zombie cult leader and just became a guy who 
like to ride bicycles or <laughs> bicycles. Could you imagine him coming out to the ring on a on a damn like mongoose? That would be amazing. Uh, but uh, no. <laughs> hey, Kane, you want to hop on my pegs? <laughs> uh, no. He rode motorcycles to the ring and came out to Limp Biscuit and Kid Rock. Uh, I I think this was just the Undertaker was tired of his gimmick and wanted to do something different. He wanted to be able to do more promos. He wanted to be more like himself. I mean, this is basically who the guy is. This is basically Mark Calloway that he's he's being right now. Like he's not really being the Undertaker, but it is kind of weird because Undertaker's gimmick is so protected. The WWE, like, they almost, like, make Biker Taker uncannon. Almost. Like, I mean, they still, like, will, re- like, will show replays. Or they, they still will say, like, it's like a soft, like, retcon. Like, yeah. you know, they'll still show a replay here and there, but they're not going to go in-depth talking about the time he was a biker for four years. And, uh, man, it ran for that long, really? Yeah, he, he went out for... uh a while in 2000, I guess, I guess not quite, I think it was more like three years, so he w- he took a hiatus uh, in 1999 and came back in 2000 as Biker Taker with really no explanation for why he... Yeah, I was going to say, like, did they canonize that somehow? Like, is there is there any reason that's given? There is, uh, is, from what I know, there is no explanation. I will say, at the end of, like, in 1999, he did start becoming a little bit more like biker taker but i mean he wasn't riding bikes he was just like talking more and you know he would sometimes you know not like dress in his full garb like sometimes he would kind of you know he might wear like black jeans instead of like you know a black jumpsuit but But, like he he didn't really go full biker until he just came back that's one thing that bothers me too with biker taker is not only that you took one of the coolest characters and made him super lame but you basically just made him steve austin yeah, kind of. Because they're like, oh, I he's will... the symbol of America, which, what? And then they he... say, there's a line where they say that uh, um, uh, Undertaker has, or the, 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 the un-Americans don't agree with, quote-unquote, the old-school values of the Undertaker. What? He was a zombie cult leader. What? I, you expect me to also believe that he voted for Mitt Romney? I mean... I mean, Mitt Romney, I also believe, is a zombie cult leader. Okay. <laughs> Good point. No, uh, yeah, no, it is, it is, man, it's crazy. I will say the one good thing about Biker Taker is that it made, when he, because eventually in 2003, Kane, Undertaker's brother, buries him alive, and he comes back as the dead man. And that was good because it that was really mysterious and really made people go crazy to see him come back as the dead man. Yeah, so that's sick. While Biker Taker wasn't really good, it did when he came back. It made people really get interested, and he had like a career renaissance. So I will say, I'm not going to say I wish he had never been Biker Taker because I would have never gotten that storyline where he was buried alive and came and came back from the dead. And I guess that's a fair point. I have not seen that, so I am still going to say I firmly resent Biker Taker. He also, he's kind of slowed down here a lot, too. He he doesn't have as good of matches during this run 
well, uh, with the exception of a few here and there. Uh, I mean, he does put on some good ones with Ric Flair and Triple H. But um, I think that, like, the thing about The Undertaker is that he's not very good at wrestling. What do I mean by that? Because you're probably like, mm, you just said something blasphemous and you don't know shit about what you're talking about. You're right. but I am thinking that. What I mean by that is that The Undertaker's good at being The Undertaker. Like, he is good at having his unique dead man style to it, like we talked about in the last episode, for The Undertaker not selling is selling. But I don't really think that The Undertaker can do normal guy wrestling. I don't think he's a good, just normal dude. I think he's only good as a zombie man. Hmm. I, I see your point. I will say I do think Undertaker is objectively a good wrestler. Although, here is not a good example because this is the worst match in the whole show. Yeah, by far. Yeah, by, by far, which to be fair, it had a lot of competition. But, um, I I kind of, I don't really like un-American, like, patriotic storylines. So I hate that we had to endure it two times on the same show. And it's just so goddamn goofy, with fucking Canadians being at our throats. Like, what the fuck? Yeah, and... To me, it feels also, like a cheap way to get the crowd to boo someone, really. That's what it absolutely that it is. is. And I've never been a big fan of, of, I mean, okay, I hate to say this, especially because he's dead, but I've never been a huge fan of Test. I just, I've just never been that thrilled about Test. I'll go ahead and tell you, I'd never heard of him up until this point, and uh, I agree. Yeah, I just, he just doesn't do anything for me, but whatever, they, um... You think there's the someone out there horrible. that's like gonna send us a send us a message? You know, like like Test is his all time favorite wrestler. He's got like Test action figures and shit, Test posters all over his room. I'm sure there's someone out there who's a huge fan of Test, and you know, if you are, you know, more power to you. You can love Test, but <laughs> Test and the Undertaker. That's the way you want to live your life. Test and the Undertaker don't put on a good match here. Um... It's not. I'll say this. It's not horrible. There's nothing like egregious about this match. It's just in comparison to everything else on this show. Like man, this one's not great. It's just there's nothing to it really. Um, Of course, the un-Americans come back. Of course, Undertaker kicks their ass. He choke slams them both. Of course, he beats Test. Test tries to bring in a chair. He gets a kick back in his face. Taker hits a tombstone pile driver for the win. And also, Undertaker is like this patriotic American badass. Yeah. Like, He's not from America. What? He's from, well, I guess he technically, well, they, I think it's really funny. He's billed as being from Houston here. But like any other time, he was always billed as being from Death Valley, which to be fair, I guess technically is in America. Yeah, and, I mean, but that is some fun wordplay. It literally is, but yeah, it's just dumb. He gets he he gets on the ropes and starts holding up the American flag. Yeah, That's it's dumb. just it's really lame. It's really fucking lame. Yeah, well, I guess we had to have a little bit of a stinker. Yeah, um, I mean, and I mean, I guess it's it's all right. Some cool stuff happens, like when Undertaker takes on three dudes at once. That was fun. It was kind of cool. But it was not the same caliber of the rest of the show. Yeah. I gave it a two out of five. I would agree with that. 
Um, so we go to the announce table with JR and King, and they're talking about the build-up to our next match, Triple H versus Shawn Michaels. So I think this is really cool that we our last um, our last one was about Shawn Michaels in the main event, kind of towards the end of his first run. So um, Shawn Michaels in, in early 1998, uh, in January of 1998, would wrestle The Undertaker in a casket match. The winner being the first person to put their opponent in the casket, of course. Taker throws Shawn outside the ring, and Shawn Michaels lands on his back on the edge of the casket, uh, severely injuring his back. Uh, he it was the champion at that point. He manages to finish the match, but he he even, it forces him into an uh, into retirement. Uh, what we all thought was his his. Second to last match, he ends up dropping the belt to Stone Cold in his last match at WrestleMania 14, WrestleMania 1998. So that was 2002. He has not wrestled a single match since then. Um, he so he was leading Degeneration X with Triple H, their bad boy, wild, you know, anti-authority group. He would leave, and Triple H would take on Degeneration X um, with. Uh, with X Pac and Road Dog and Billy Gunn and China, and eventually Triple H like becomes like one of the top guys in the company, multiple time champion. Um, but it just not too long before this, Shawn Michaels starts coming back. He starts you know showing up in a non wrestling role. Eventually, Triple H on an episode of Raw says, "Hey, why don't we get the band back together?" do a little Degeneration X. So they have this big Degeneration X reunion. We haven't seen them in forever. Crowd's going crazy. Just as, like, they're about to do their catchphrase, like, let's get ready to suck it, which is a weird catchphrase. But Triple H turns on him, which, like, is, like, Triple H's thing, turning on people. So he turns on Shawn Michaels, and he's like, you know, you're weak. I'm better than you. And, uh... Sean gets, you know, beaten up um, in the parking lot, and he's all bloody, and they're trying to figure out who did it, and Triple H is, act- <laughs> is acting like, you know, he's trying to show concern. He- he's like, I'm going to find whoever did this to you, Sean. And eventually we find out, of course, it's Triple H, because <laughs> he was okay. caught on security camera footage. Man, it's so dumb. It's so fucking stupid. Because, I mean, obviously, I, I haven't seen this um, storyline, like, all the way through. I've just seen what was in the package here. But was it really the way they found out was that the security camera footage, like, they zoomed in on it and it fucking unpixelated to show Triple H? That, I, I'm pretty sure. The fucking CSI enhanced bullshit? That was, that was so stupid. You know, maybe if he had tried to disguise himself better and not wear a shirt with his goddamn name on it, maybe he would have gotten <laughs> away with it. No, I, I guess do, he didn't want to get away with it. I do have to say, I think this should have been the main event, um, personally. That's a I, good point. I mean, it's a big moment. I mean, you know, not wrestling for four years after being on top, this is a big deal. And especially wrestling someone like Triple H, they have so much history together. I mean, yeah, this was a big match. Um, uh, I thought it was a really good one, too. But... Uh, I, Real quick, I, I will say, so, so Sean comes out of retirement, and but Bischoff is like, I won't sanction this match. So it's an unsanctioned match, which to me is like, okay, well, then why did it get pay-per-view time and a referee, and why did a bell ring? <laughs> <laughs> um, 
What were you going to say? Uh, I was just going to say that I think, uh, like, can we talk a little bit about Triple H? Because a lot of people know him Yeah, we as, can talk about, oh, heh <laughs> As this super badass dude. But um, when did he start as Hunter Hearst Helmsley, this British gentleman, and how did he become Triple H? Because I'm a little confused. He, st- he started off in the business as Hunter Hearst Helmsley. He wasn't British. He was from Connecticut. He was a Connecticut blue blood. Oh, I'm sorry. Yeah. He was Hunter Hearst Helmsley, and it was it was around the time he started partnering up with Shawn Michaels. He, he dropped the accent. They still called him Hunter Hearst Helmsley for a while, and eventually they just shortened it to Triple H as, like, shorthand, and eventually that just caught on. And he is uh, for real married to Stephanie McMahon, yeah? At this point, he's not married to her in in 2002. Oh, yeah, I, I mean, like, like it, now in 2018, they're married. Yeah, he is. So, you know, Triple H and Stephanie McMahon got married in the storyline, and then eventually, in 2003, they get married in real life. I, what I always thought was funny is they didn't mention that they were married in real life on TV until years later. They would make, <laughs> like, little jokes about it here and there. Um, but they, it wasn't until, like, 2010 they were outed as being a... Wow. As being a couple, um, which I always thought was interesting. Um, but, yeah, he, here uh, he's full Triple H, the game. Um, I thought it was really funny. So it's an unsanctioned match, which basically means hardcore match, street fight, anything goes. Uh, I do think it's really funny that Sean comes out in a tank top and jeans and cowboy boots. Yeah, but he did have those, like, rhinestones all over him, sparkling and stuff. Yeah, he still wore his chaps. He still wore his assless chaps over his regular clothes, which makes me wonder, is that how he just dresses? <laughs> and and as a... Because he, he, like, became really religious during his time off, so I, I thought it was interesting he's wearing, like, a Bible verse on his shirt. Uh, it makes me, un- like, like unreasonably angry that he came out first. <laughs> I feel like Triple H should have come out first and then Sean. Yeah, because it's like, like build a build-up. Yeah, but it's it's whatever. Um, so we get these two guys facing off. You can really feel the tension. Oh, I've got one uh, one question. Has anyone ever called Shawn Michaels the backbreak kid? Damn, they should. <laughs> I, I'm sure. That, that's the other thing. They they really build up his, his back injury here. Um, Shawn starts off really hot. Uh, uh, they, he s- sends him right to the outside of the ring. Shawn slingshots himself over the top rope. Starts slamming Triple H's head into the ring post. Triple H tries to run away. Sean gets a trash can out from under the ring. Hits him with the trash can lid. Um, they get back in the ring eventually. Um, and, uh, and, and, and Sean starts tuning up the band. And he's stomping in the corner, which is like his build-up for the sweet chin music, his finisher. But, uh, but Triple H ducks it and hits a backbreaker. So this is when they really start selling his back problems, um, which I think was really good. It done really well here. Yeah, I, I agree. It was done well here. I mean, sort of for what three? This being the third uh, matches in this show, there is like this person has injury in X part of their body, and their opponent's taking advantage of it. 
But I think that's, this is the best use. That's true. And this is the best one because it's so tied to Shawn Michaels, because this is his first match back. Um, he, he, he sends Shawn back first into the turnbuckle. Uh, I, I like Triple H does the crotch chop, which was like DX's like signature taunt. Uh, and then he kicks him. He just starts laying elbows right into his back. And the, King says something cool here. He says, it might be better off for his, for his family if he just lets it in. He's basically saying, yeah, Sean, just give up. You know, you've done great. Just throw in the towel. Yeah, which he says, like, at pretty much the beginning of the match. Um, yeah. Which I yeah, thought we're, is, we're, is interesting. We're pretty early on in here. Uh, Triple H gets a steel chair, starts hammering Sean's back. And Sean is selling really well here. He's, he's selling the pain. You almost think that he might actually be in pain. He may be. Yeah, I mean, hey, when it comes to steel chairs, right, like um, with The Rock and Mick Foley hitting him in the head with steel chair 11 times or, or however many times it was, there is only a certain amount of fakery and acting that can go into a hit with a steel chair, I think. So, and plus like, he's hitting him level, in— that's going to fucking hurt. He's hitting him in his broken back, so. Yeah, yeah. Uh, he, he, he Triple H does a DDT onto the chair, and Sean's bleeding. This is like the one time Sean doesn't just bleed everywhere, though. Like, he actually yeah, stops this, bleeding. This <laughs> I think match, he forgot how to blade. I was going to say, this match is actually, like, the <laughs> it's the opposite of last time. Like, this time, Shawn Michaels makes someone else bleed for once. Yeah, I I think he didn't cut deep enough because he he like bleeds a little bit at the beginning and then stops, which is interesting. Uh, Triple H takes off Sean's belt and starts whipping him with it, uh, wraps it around his fist, punches him with the belt buckle. Um, and then Triple H goes to the outside. He, he has to look like all over the ring before he finally finds his sledgehammer. That was his signature weapon. Uh, I always I kind of don't like the sledgehammer. I agree. And here's why. It is an OP weapon. Exactly. Exactly. And I cannot suspend my disbelief that you can hit someone with a sledgehammer and them not die. Yeah, I agree. And at one point we get like a close-up on the sledgehammer, and I'm almost positive that it is actually not a real sledgehammer. Here's an interesting thing about the sledgehammer. I don't know if it's real or not here, but I do know... I, I think it is real. Most of the time, the sledgehammer is real. And, and Triple H never actually hits him with the sledgehammer. If you watch, he puts his hand oh, on Oh, yeah, on the, I mean, he's, he pulls it at the last second to, to just make it look like a hit, for sure. But I feel like you're well, still it, playing it, with his, fire his there. His hand is always covering it, which I always think is funny. It's like, if you're trying to hurt him, why are you putting your hand on it? Yeah. But the one time they tried to that I know of that they tried to use a fake sledgehammer was in Triple H versus Undertaker at WrestleMania 17. The fake sledgehammer broke and actually injured Undertaker. So one time they tried to use a fake one, it was more dangerous. Wow. So I they, mean, don't, I guess, they usually do not use a fake sledgehammer. Yeah, I guess there is a certain amount of, like, when you're working with something that's actually dangerous, you're going to take a little bit of extra care to make sure that you don't hurt someone with it. Yeah. But, uh, yeah, no, that's... I think the sledgehammer is kind of dumb, but it's so tied to Triple H's gimmick that... Mm. 
Um, oh, uh, so he he comes into the ring and the ref tries to take the sledgehammer from him. I thought this was unsanctioned. Why is <laughs> right? Uh, he takes it from him and so it distracts Triple H long enough for Shawn Michaels to come back, uh, whip him into the turnbuckle, but Triple H reverses it and he goes back first into the into the turnbuckles, and then he puts Shawn in an abdominal stretch. He even grabs the ropes for leverage, which the ref tries to make him break up. And I think this is really funny because Triple H pushes the referee, and he pushes them right back. <laughs> yeah. And they start fighting, which gives Sean time to fight back. Uh, he co- goes to the top rope, tries for an elbow drop, but Triple H pushes the ref into the ropes, and HBK gets crotched on the top rope. Giving uh giving Triple H time to hit Sean right in the back with the steel chair, he sets it up in the ring like he unfolds it and and slams him back first into it so hard that the seat like completely like almost breaks off. Yeah, uh, he covers him, only gets a two count. He keeps trying to pin him over and over again, but Sean keeps kicking out. Uh, he slams him onto the chair again. Triple H keeps kicking out. Or Sean keeps kicking out. Triple H is obviously frustrated. The crowd is chanting HBK. They're going wild for him. Uh, Hunter's going to try to go for his finisher or pedigree, where he, he slams the guy's face into the mat, but he's going to slam him on the chair. But Sean manages to hit a low blow, and now we've we've got Sean back in the driver's seat. Uh, Triple H goes for tries to hit him with the chair, but gets a sweet chin music. Kicks the chair right into his face. I thought he's bleeding bad. I thought that was super fucking cool, man. When he sweet chin music the chair into his face, that to me was the highlight of this match. I mean, a lot of cool yeah. shit happened and will continue to happen uh, before we we wrap up talking about this. But that was my favorite thing. Yeah, that was it was cool, and and I mean he bleeds bad. He's bleeding all down his chest, um, and Sean's not even bleeding anymore. Yeah. Uh, so, uh, so Sean's doing his, he's running through his, like, his signature moves, hits the flying forearm, kips up, whips Triple H into the ropes, backdrops him, hits Hunter right in the face with the steel chair, throws him into the corner so hard he goes flying out of the ring, he's hitting him with the trash can lid, he's hitting him with the belt, uh, throws him right over the announce table, and... Bulldogs him onto the steel. I mean, he's really just like laying it all in. Then he gets the ladder out, and the crowd goes nuts. Shawn Michaels is kind of considered to be the pioneer of the ladder match because he was in the first, second, and third ladder match in WWE history. The man does love himself a ladder. He does, and uh, puts it to good use here, smashing him in the face and the chest, slingshots him face first into the ladder. He tries to pin him in the ring. Hunter still kicks out. He uh, he gets the ladder kicked back in his face eventually. Um, but eventually, uh, Sean's able to hit a hit a superplex off the top rope. Only gets two and a half. Um, eventually, Hunter comes into the ring with the steps, but gets tripped up. Lands face first on the on the uh, steps. He goes back to the outside, hits him with a fire extinguisher. Like, he's really hitting him with everything here. 
Um, yeah, this is very weapons heavy, and um, I mean, it's it's a lot of fun. It doesn't feel hokey. It it feels good. And of course, he brings out the big furniture, gets a table out, uh, and then Sean does a splash through the table through Triple H. Crowd's chanting, "Holy shit!" They come back in the ring. Sean puts the ladder up. He climbs on top of it, hits a diving elbow drop off the ladder, and then he starts tuning up the band yet again for another sweet chin music, but this time Hunter ducks it, kicks him in the gut, goes for the pedigree, but Sean reverses that into a roll-up and gets the surprise win out of nowhere. Yeah. What a Um, great way to come back. What'd you think of that ending? I, I know some people are kind of split on the ending. I liked it, honestly. Um, I, I mean, I, I thought it was cool for him to for him to turn that around like that. Because yeah, you know, Shawn he Michaels, this whole match, his whole thing is that he has this energy with him coming back in, like the moment where he just jumps up off the mat and like the announce team is like, "That's pure adrenaline." Like, I think I know. He, I kind I kind of like him winning out of nowhere. Like rather, you know, a lot of people are like, oh, he should have won with the with the super kick. But to me, like him winning out of nowhere is like really shows like, oh, just how like how like how much he can just outsmart Hunter. Right, exactly. Like how revved up he is, and I, I agree. I I thought it was fine. I liked it. Uh, yeah, and of course that's kind of done for storytelling purposes, so that Hunter is still, you know, he's not out of it, and he's able to. Uh, hit him in the back with the sledgehammer twice as Sean's celebrating. The doctors come in the ring and and start putting him on a stretcher. JR says that Triple H is going to rot in hell for what he's done here. (laughs) Now, Um, Triple H is also one that does not like to lose, correct? Yeah. Um, To an extent. Now, here here it may... Even though Sean's the the older one here, it made sense for Sean to win because it's his first. Oh match yeah, it's back. his comeback. It's his he comeback for won. sure. I was just saying, and like, because I feel like even when you have someone that doesn't like to lose, when they do lose, they need something else. Like, and for yeah, you, that and, was the well, sledgehammer hit. Here's the thing: you want to keep this feud going. I mean, this feud lasts a while. Uh, it's a little bit on and off, but it, I mean, it's on and off till for the next two years. Oh wow! Um, but. You need that, you like if like if this is their first match, you don't want Sean to just completely obli- ob- obliterate Triple H. Okay, yeah, you gotta for have sure. something happen to kind of further it and keep people watching, and they did that perfectly here. Yeah, no, oh, I yeah. really like this match, and I think it should have been the main event. I gave this one a four point seven five out of five stars. Yeah, um, it was great. I'm actually gonna disagree with you, and I do think what went on as the main event was a good main event, not just because it was for the title, but because it was between, because it was such a passing of the torch moment. We'll get to it in just a second. First, got to talk about... More our horny. Second, our second horny segment of the evening. Howard Finkel comes... They did, they were doing something weird with Howard Finkel. So Howard Finkel is a longtime wrestling announcer, been around since the 80s. They decided to put him in a storyline for some reason where he's a heel... And and refers to himself as the Fink. Well, okay, he is the Fink. That's his name. He's not the only one who calls himself. Everyone calls him the Fink. Okay. We get Trish Stratus come out. Um, this is before. This is when Trish is like kind of making her segue from being eye candy to the greatest, one of the greatest women's wrestlers of all time. 
Finkel calls her a slut, and Trish says that he's sexy. Yeah. Finkel's like, I want to see your puppies, and I want to show you my wiener. Yeah. Which, first of all, like, why didn't he say, like, wiener dog? When you just say wiener, then it's just like, oh, you're just saying penis. Yeah, no, it was, this bit is rough. And the thing is, there's no context for it either. So, like, I I don't know. Maybe you know what's going on here. I have no idea what the fuck I'm watching when I see this. Okay, here's the thing. They had a SmackDown ring announcer. The Raw ring announcer title was up for grabs between Howard Finkel and Lillian Garcia. And so, they're feuding. So, Lillian's the one who comes out next and slaps Howard Finkel and then kicks him in the ball so hard she falls down. Um, yeah, part of that felt real. <laughs> I'm sure it was. They're feuding over the ring announcer position, and eventually it gets uh, it gets decided when the two have a match. These two non-wrestlers have a match. What? An evening gown versus tuxedo match, which is where the woman wears the evening gown, Howard Finkel wears a tuxedo, and the person who wins is the first person to take the other one's clothes off. I'm sorry, could you repeat that? They have a match where the object is to strip your opponent. I'm sorry, could you... I I think I'm hearing you wrong. They have a naked match. Well, because, okay, they started doing a lot of bra and panties matches, which is a dumb match where you literally... The object is to take your opponent's clothes off. And... They also have an evening gown match, which is the same thing, except the wrestler wears an evening gown. This is and just the male so version of that is apparently a tuxedo, which to me, I feel like that is very skewed in the man's favor. Absolutely. Because is. an evening gown is one article of clothing, whereas a tuxedo is like jacket, pants, tie, shoes, socks, shirt. Vest. Now, like, will I you, mean, like, that is not fair. Would you say that ruthless aggression, because I feel like we can kind of see it here, is, I mean, it's a little bit less horny than attitude, right? Yeah. Um, because a little I, bit. It's like they're slowly moving in the right direction, but it's still still too much horny in this. And, and it's very slow. This, I, I don't know if they were filling time or what, because, I mean, this show felt packed. Like, it didn't... This was, like, the only real, like, I mean, this was, other than very, a few very brief ones, this was the only, like, extended non-wrestling segment. And, I don't know, it was just weird. Um, but, what? okay, what do you hate more, this or the make-out competition? This because it lasted longer. Okay, I think that that is a fair answer. Well... Uh, we go to, to Michael Cole and Taz. We're back to our SmackDown announce team. They uh, seem just as bewildered as I did after, after <laughs> what happened. They're like, yeah, I don't really know what to say about that. Um, we go to our promo package with Lesnar and The Rock. I will say the promo packages here have been really good. The Sean versus Hunter one was really good. Yeah, oh, was it was. cool, too. We see a lot of the buildup of Lesnar's rise to the top. He beat Rob Van Dam at King of the Ring. Uh, the Rock beat Kurt Angle and Undertaker at Vengeance for the undisputed title. Uh, the again build up Lesnar as the guy who killed Hulkamania, and then they show both guys doing this like training regimen. 
So let me take a second and talk about both these guys. I don't really need to talk too much about The Rock because we've talked about him a lot. Interestingly, last time we watched The Rock, like, really in when he was very new, whereas this is very much the end of his of his in-ring career. Uh, so much so that this is the this is his last match as a as a like a full time active wrestler on the roster on the roster. He's going to movies after this. He does not wrestle for about six months after this. Uh, and even then, once he comes back, it's it's for one shot feuds. Uh, he he wrestles maybe five more matches before he like full time retires from wrestling and and takes a seven-year absence. So, yeah, he's got about five more years before he's gone, gone. Wow, I didn't, I didn't realize Five that. more matches before he's gone. I didn't realize that this was so close to the end of his career. Yeah. Which makes what's yeah. about to happen make a lot of sense. Yeah, this is actually uh, his, his second-to-last world title. The next time he wins it is when he makes his, his comeback in, like, 2014. Uh, he won it just uh, to add something to his feud with Cena. Brock Lesnar debuts in the WWF, was the WWF at the time, debuts in the WWF in March of 2002. By August, he's in the main event with The Rock. Jesus I mean, Christ. Shoots up quick. I mean, they were just in love with him because, I mean, he has a good look. I mean, he's got the look. Uh, he has an amateur wrestling background. Um uh, I gotta, I, I gotta say something though. I gotta be honest. I don't love Brock Lesnar. I think he's mostly I, a nothing. I, I don't think that he has personality. That is the thing. He has, he has zero personality, which is why they pair him with his manager here, Paul Heyman, because oh. Paul kind of has to do the talking for him. Uh, yeah, I've, I've never been huge on Brock Lesnar. It's interesting. He has a has a pretty short first run in WWE. You know, he came back in 2002. I mean, 2012. Excuse me. Um. After after eight years away, so he his first run. You know, he started in March 2002. It ends in March 2004. So his first wow. run is two years. Um. And. But I will say he squares off with a lot of big guys. I mean, he's wrestling the Rock. Yeah, I mean, already you just were Hulk talking Hogan. about how he took down like fucking Hulk Hogan. He's gonna have a really great series with Kurt Angle. I, something I will say, he has some incredible matches with Kurt Angle. But again, you know, that's a lot of credit of that does go to Angle. Um, so Brock has some good matches. Um, you know, obviously he's a lot slower. Um, but this match is really big for the spectacle of it. I mean, you're getting. You know, two big, two big stars in there. That's why I think this was a good main event because you have someone like Brock Lesnar who is huge. I mean, the crowd loves him so much so that even though The Rock is the face here, there a lot of them are booing him and saying Rocky sucks. Yeah, which for Brock again is always weird when I hear. I think the fans were getting tired of The Rock. Is why, and they also kind of knew he was leaving, so they were like, "Hey, you're turning your back on us. So see you later." You know? Okay. Wow. Yeah. Um, we we start our our match. Uh, the Rock lays the title belt on the ground on the entrance and comes charging right into the ring, and they immediately start going at it. Uh, Lesnar hits a big belly to belly suplex, only gets a two count. Lesnar eventually knocks The Rock to the outside, and Paul Heyman is there 
punts him right in the gut. Again, we have another match where they're selling an injury. I, I, I actually, now that I'm like laying it all out, I'm like, geez, they did that on like every match, basically. <laughs> because they start talking about The Rock's ribs. Yeah, yeah, they do, which I never knew that he had a rib injury. I th- oh, I think it was probably a kayfabe, uh, kayfabe storyline injury. I don't think oh, it was a real injury. Gotcha. I, I think I think that Rock beat him up, and he he's like, oh, that's the ribs he he injured last week. Uh, we're back on the outside. Lesnar tosses the Rock over the guardrail and into the crowd. Then he clotheslines him back in. The Rock keeps fighting back, and Heyman keeps getting into it, which I kind of hate. I don't really like how involved Paul Heyman is in this match because I I agree. Like it makes the rock, like it makes Brock Lesnar look bad. Like he's this big hulking mass of human and he has to have this like roly poly, like fight his match for him. Yeah. Yeah. It was, it dumb. was, it was a odd choice. And I, I think it hurt the match because this is Brock Lesnar's time to shine you need to make him look real good. You don't need him like winning because his manager helped him. Um. So again, Lesnar's working on those ribs. Rock eventually is able to hit a big back suplex, and both of them are down, and they both kip up at the same time and come face to face. Uh, the Rock is trying to make him go down. Brock is just, like, fighting through it. Eventually, Rock's able to clothesline him down, hit a DDT, puts him in the sharpshooter, but Heyman gets involved again, comes up on the apron. The Rock punches Heyman right in the face. Uh, (laughs) Then the Rock... What? I was just giggling at the fact that the Rock punched Heyman right in the face because it was kind of gratifying. Yeah, it was. But but it gets even more gratifying a little bit later Uh, because Heyman tries to interfere again. He throws a chair in the ring. So Rock... Throws him, throws Heyman in the ring, tries to hit him with a rock bottom, but Lesnar breaks it up. While the ref is trying to get Heyman out of the ring, Lesnar uh, hits him in the gut with like the top of the chair, and yeah. then he puts Rock in a bear hug, which is the same move that took out Hulk Hogan. So they're really selling that. Uh, the Rock eventually fights out of it. Heyman's back again, distracting the Rock. Uh, but actually, this time it works out for the Rocks because he's able to hit a low blow while the referee's trying to get Paul out of there. Um, eventually, we we go back to the outside again. Rock like punches him so hard he flies over the top rope. Has there ever uh, been an agent that was actually like good? Because I feel the same way about this that I do about Paul Bearer. Here's the thing. I think maybe it's just your opinion. Maybe what you've seen. A lot of the like people love these guys. Like Paul Heyman is actually considered to be one of the best managers. It's just sometimes they're just not used right. Like Paul Heyman is very useful a lot of times. Uh, you know, Lesnar's not good on the mic, so here we have Paul Heyman being able to put him over better. You know, I, that's what he should be doing. Okay. He shouldn't be getting so involved in the match. Um. I think there are a lot of good wrestling managers out there. Um, it's just that for a lot of what you've seen, they get too involved. Uh, so it's all about how they're used, really. Gotcha, gotcha. We're we're on the outside now, and The Rock starts taking apart the announce table. Heyman tries to sneak up on The Rock, but gets caught, and Heyman yells out, Oh, shit. I love <laughs> it when you catch wrestlers cussing. Rock 
catapults Lesnar right into the into the turnbuckle post, and then he just he makes sure Heyman is out of the rest of the equation here by putting him through the announce table with a rock bottom. Yeah, and that you're right, that was more rewarding. Uh, back in the ring, Rock hits the rock bottom. Rock hits the rock bottom on Lesnar. Lesnar kicks out at two point nine 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 nine, and the crowd is chanting for Lesnar. Lesnar gets up and he hits the rock bottom, or as Taz calls it, the Brock bottom. On the, rock. <laughs> the Rock kicks out at two point nine 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 nine. I really that's that's a good use of like kicking out of finishers, and it makes it really like, oh shit, who's gonna win here? Yeah, um, absolutely. This was very tense. A very tense match. Rock hits a spine buster, goes for the people's elbow, but Lesnar gets up, clotheslines his head off, and then he attempts his finisher, the F five. Which you may not like Lesnar, but the F five is a cool move. Yeah, no, it was pretty. It was pretty sick. Rock is manages to break out of it, drop down to his feet. He tries for another rock bottom. Lesnar reverses him into an F five for the win. I ended up giving this one a three and a half out of five stars. It was a great main event. Uh, you know, these guys uh, Brock a little bit more, but these guys aren't known for putting on huge like wrestling clinics. They are entertaining. It had a really good ending, a really good back-and-forth ending, but Heyman was involved a little too much. But, I mean, this is exactly what we were talking about with putting people over. This is a match where The Rock, on his way out, puts Brock Lesnar over to pass the torch to, you know, um, to really, in good faith, preserve the the legacy of the company rather than the legacy of himself. Yeah. And, and and that's important, you know. the The Rock didn't need to win here. It was it was Brock's turn. Uh, I almost though I think he maybe shot to the top a little too fast, but I but based on the crowd reaction, maybe it was the right thing to do. Uh, Brock was only twenty five when he uh, when he won the title. Uh, that that record gets beaten a little bit later by Randy Orton, but um, at the time, you know, he was uh, it, it was a record, and. Um, Brock goes on to have a pretty good first run. He won. He I think he wins the title two or maybe three times, um, and then of course the Rock does not show up again until the next year. He's gone for the rest of this year and doesn't show up again until two thousand three. Has a rematch with uh, with Hulk Hogan, and then he has his third WrestleMania match with Stone Cold, which ends up being Stone Cold's last match. But yeah, The Rock, the Rock is pretty much done with his full-time career and only wrestles a handful of matches from here on out. Um, but yeah, no, uh, uh, and it's interesting because, you know, I the Brock is the new era. The Rock, is, it, it's almost like kind of crazy to think that these guys wrestled each other. Um, the only time I'm familiar with that they went one-on-one uh, but a good passing the torch moment, uh, the show immediately ends. Uh, I thought this was all around an incredible, incredible wrestling show. Oh, absolutely. I loved this show pretty much top to bottom. Well, that about does it for this edition of Turnbuckle Training. We want to encourage you to watch along with us. So next week, you know, we, we did Attitude Era. We did Ruthless Aggression Era. But to make you a more well-rounded wrestling fan, we do have to show you, you know, it's not all about WWE. So we want to, you know, we talked about it a little bit here, the competition with the uh, the other companies. So we want to give you a little taste 
of what the WWE was competing with during the Attitude Era. So we're going to do a little WCW. We're going to watch Spring Stampede 1999. Zach, this will be your first taste of some WCW. Yeah, I've never watched anything outside the WWE. But um, because the WWE does own the WCW, you can still find those on the WWE Network. But Vince McMahon isn't signing our checks, so if you can find it anywhere else, we won't snitch. You can also keep up with us uh, 24-7 on Twitter, at Turnbuckle Train. Uh, I'm going to kind of you know try to engage with you guys a little bit more. I, I want to put out a poll uh, on there. So you guys voted in it. Tell me what you think, if you like Attitude Era or Ruthless Aggression Era better, or maybe something else, and let me know what you think. Also, we have another show called Feud Fight, where me and Peyton uh, and our good, good friend, Zachary Denmark, the third big dude, discuss really dumb shit on a weekly basis. So if you like us and you like a show that's a little bit less um, about something, then you can come check us out there at Feud Fight. Yeah, if you like this show, uh, then our other show has absolutely nothing in common with it except for the people who are in it. <laughs> so, so if you like us just on a personal level, then uh, then then Feud Fight may be for you. Uh, those episodes are coming out every Monday. Uh, Zach, Zach Denmark, our, our, our third member of our posse, is also responsible for creating our excellent artwork so i always want to give him yes thank a you shout out. so much zach d well thanks guys for listening and see you here not next thursday but the next one which is what day of the month is that zach i believe that is old hallows eve nope nope it is the day after hallows eve november 1st is when we'll be seeing you next Oh, man. Ah. If I would have known that, we could have done a spooky episode. But since we're a day out, then, then it doesn't matter. So I have a spooky Halloween, everyone. Can we cover, cover the gobbledygooker for Thanksgiving? Oh, God. It's me, Austin! The numbers don't lie, and they spell disaster for you as sacrifice. Son of a bitch. I did it for the ride.